One of the big things, and this is something I kind of realized as I matured, I'm not going to name any names because I'm almost, it's almost kind of like a backhanded compliment, but there are some people who are absolutely trash at jujitsu and the majority of their students are trash at jujitsu. These are black belts. The majority of their students are trash at jujitsu. Like these people would lose some of my blue belts like easily, but they have a certain way about them that they make people love doing jujitsu. And so sometimes their students greatly ex- exceed them. So in that regard, I think that that's important, the ability to inspire people to want to do jujitsu. Welcome to another episode of Forever White Belt. I'm your host, Adolfo Ferranda. Today, we're thrilled to have a special guest on the show, jujitsu black belt extraordinaire, Emil Fisher. Hailing from the vibrant city of Cleveland, Ohio, and representing strong style MMA, Emil is a practitioner who often finds himself in the crossroads of professionalism and an active jiu-jitsu lifestyle. He's also, in my opinion, one of the most misunderstood figures in the community. Some of my favorite aspects of Emil is that he is intelligent, effective, and irreverent. I think it is this mixture that makes those with overdeveloped egos uncomfortable. Emil's walkouts in jiu-jitsu competitions are, without a doubt, the stuff of legend. Don't take my word for it. Just go and search for yourself. In this episode, we delve into Emil's early days, exploring why he initially faced challenges at White Belt, like being asked to leave a couple academies. We'll unravel the confusion surrounding Emil's academy affiliation, touch on his contributions to jiu-jitsu times, explore his unique Burt Reynolds guard instructional, and connect the dots between him and notable figures like Mirkatsu, Stipe Miocic, Dante Leone, and much more. It's a truly fascinating discussion, and I personally found myself empathizing with and genuinely liking Emil. Remember to show your support by liking, sharing, and subscribing, you guys. And with that, I give you Emil Fisher. Emil, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for having me on. You are a black belt under who? I could not figure that one out. I received my black belt from Pablo Castro. I don't really know what the status is of that teacher-student relationship. He departed from the academy where I'm currently the head coach. He was the head coach. He left. I took over his post there. He is still my dear friend, but we're now affiliated under Dante Leone. So I guess technically I'm under him and therefore under Heath Pedigo. I was going to ask you about that because I saw this Pedigo thing on your belt checker, but uh, so I was kind of confused with the affiliation or whatever. Yeah, it's confusing. It's a confusing situation. I'm honestly just, you know, happy that I can still be friends with Pablo and that we're still we're still on good terms. Like a few weeks ago, there was a fight to win here locally, and uh, it was kind of cool. One of my students now, who Pablo had promoted up through the ranks, I don't know what prompted Pablo to want this, but Pablo comes up and he's like, "Hey, can I be in the corner too?" I'm like, "Yeah, bro, let's do it." So you know, we coach him to victory. It was great. That's great that you guys still have that. Yeah, with especially it gets weird at black belt. I've noticed too for a lot of you guys out there. I'm I'm realizing, especially when it comes to all these degrees, because there's always this separation between the person that gave the black belt and the black belt. And time goes by, and then things happen or distance. And, and not that there's anything bad, but then there's all this. How do I get my first degree? Yeah, whatever. Who cares about degrees? But then you know, no, you care people do. Third degree is where you're allowed to start minting black belts yourself. Second or third. I think it's third. And I'm not a first degree black belt yet. But second or third is where you start minting black belts. And then seventh is when it changes over to that cool coral belt. 
Ah. And I do want to wear one of those one day, so, you know. You started jiu-jitsu in 99, right? And you got your black belt in, what, 2020? Good, good recon, yeah. 2021, I got my black belt. 1999 was when I first dabbled into it, but really started training in earnest in 2011. You're at a really interesting place uh, called Strongstock. Yeah, so Strongstyle MMA, I joined in 2014 as a white belt. I came there with a decent existing skill set. Like, I was already able to hang with a lot of purple belts, and even some brown belts at the time not that belts really a good indicator of skill like if you put your average competitive blue belt in front of me i was able to usually do pretty well against them a hobbyist purple belt or brown belt i was usually able to tap it just how i was at that point and then from there i just kind of built onto it at strong style developed a lot of uh, catch wrestling style grappling uh, training there because the head coach and owner of the gym marcus marinelli was a catch wrestler and a shoot fighter back in the 80s and then also a gentleman who has coached me quite a bit over the years sean Doherty, came from a shoot fighting slash catch wrestling background well a lot of people sleep on catch I'm, I'm so fascinated i'm starting to just fall into the in love with this the way that i built the way i grapple was these are the rules here are rules that i think i could break i'm going to build my game around breaking these rules and so now it's kind of funny like as the coach now it's like well shit i got to teach you guys fundamentals and people will ask me, oh, can you show us how to do that that weird you know, leg entry that you do? And I'm like, I can, but I don't recommend making that your thing. But I do try to make sure that they understand that, you know, for example, I had a student ask me something the other day. I forget what it was. I think it was something about a passing position. Like, can you go to this side with this, you know, with the, I'm like, I don't. You can, I guess. You're still a white belt, so maybe try it the way I'm doing it. But try it the way you think you should do it and see if it feels right. That sounds very uh, sort of uh, ecological, if you will. What do you think of that? I don't know enough about it, to be honest with you. I, I'm familiar with it. One of my students currently is convalescing from a major knee, I think, reconstruction or replacement. But he's like super into it. His name is Matt Levy. And Matt has just, he's been talking a lot with Greg Souders, who I think is in the, on the forefront of that ecological method of training. I think a lot of my existing training modalities are along the lines of ecological methods. But yeah, I'm always willing and down to learn more about teaching. I, I always say like when it comes to jujitsu, you can be a very good practitioner in the training room. You can be a very good competitor. Those are not necessarily the same thing. You can be a very good instructor, or you can be a very good coach slash corner. And these, these are four different things that you can be good at one of them and shitty at the rest. Right now, I consider myself to be a black belt practitioner, you know, gi no gi. A hobbyist competitor in the gi, I would consider myself be a pro-level, lower-level, pro-level competitor no gi. You know, you put me in front of a, a real pro competitor, I, I can beat them, but I don't always. But I, I have the ability to, and I'm confident in my ability to do so. And then when it comes to teaching and coaching, I'm still like, you know, I'd say a purple belt teacher, or a, a brown belt teacher, and then a uh, blue belt or white belt coach. Having watched your style, and a lot of people say various things about you in terms of like uh, being a unconventional so I can see the ecological thing or you don't seem to fit into like these boxes no. you know these things that I notice and someone with your particular style 
couldn't have because you've sort of you skirt the edges of a lot of stuff. Oh, I yeah. Noticed. Also, they say that you're really strong for how you appear or whatever, or initially maybe people just anecdotally watching videos of you or something like that. I've been doing martial arts since I was eight years old. I've been grappling since I was 14 years old. My body is built around a, a martial sport style, I guess. Like my grandfather was a catch wrestler. My dad was a semi-pro boxer. Like it's in my blood, I guess. So I'm going to feel differently strong to people that are not from that sort of a background. And then also I train every single day. I'm training with large, scary humans on a regular basis who push me very, very far into my limits. And so, yeah, I would, I would tend to agree that I'm probably stronger than people think I am. Now, you mentioned uh, teaching. How long have you been teaching? At what belt did you start teaching? 2016 was when I really started teaching on a regular basis. I was a blue belt. There was an affiliate gym to Pablo. Pablo had an affiliate. It's called Iza. That's the name of the gym. They didn't have a regular jiu-jitsu coach there. The owner of the gym, Ali, is a brown belt or might be a black belt by now. And Ali asked me if I would be willing to come over and help him run his jiu-jitsu program. And so with Pablo's blessing, I went ahead and did that. That lasted for a couple of years. After that, I was kind of roped into doing a jiu-jitsu program at like a CrossFit type gym was not a good fit not because of any personal issues just literally physically was not a good fit like they didn't have a space for the mats and so it was a whole thing then in uh december january 2020 2020 2021 this uh very high level judoka he was a member of the armenian national team he's got an academy very close to my work very close to my house he reached out to me and asked me if i wanted to run a program at his academy it's called Ararat martial arts armenian and he had me come over and start a program there i've dubbed it effective jujitsu it's got my initials in it clever and then uh end of march this year pablo quit and i was offered his position at strong style and initially i did not want it with my at the time five-month-old baby and i have a business that i run and i have another program that i did not give up it was kind of one of those things i was like i'm gonna be juggling a lot and they basically they made me an offer i couldn't refuse so that's where I am at now. What do you think makes a great instructor, coach? A couple things. Number one, ability to connect with the human being. So like a lot of coaches, I'm trying to think of a good word for it, I feel like they're almost dissonant. Like they, they don't do a good job of vibing with other people. And I, I'm not, I don't do a very good job of vibing with people. So like, just so we're clear, I, I'm hoping I'm doing what I can do for my students to uh, like being around me and like hearing me speak and like, you know, learning from me. And That's surprising because when I see you on other you know, shows or something in interviews, you seem so affable and, you know, like a people person. I'm not. <laughs> I, I don't know. Like, I, I try to be friendly. I try to be a decent human being, but people generally either love me or hate me. Like I'm polarizing at the very least. And so because of that, I, there are multiple people that I know of that claim that I'm the reason that they left Strongstown. I'm like, at the time when they left, I wasn't even coaching there. I was usually off on the side, just training by myself. Well, not by myself, but with like a select group of people that I trusted to help me prepare for competition. Like I wasn't even really, like I'd teach occasionally, but neither here nor there. But my point is that's one aspect. Another aspect of being a good coach, I think, is having a deep understanding of the technique and understanding how to put that understanding into as few words that are understandable as possible. Somebody who I'm a huge fan of is uh, Jonathan Thomas. I think you've had him on this before. Yeah. I think that yeah. that guy is the prototype of how people should be teaching. 
Yeah, he's a, he's a master. I think he's yeah, just fucking sure. amazing at teaching. Like, I, I just, I, every time I see a video of his pop up, I'm like, God damn. Okay. He can take an hour long Danaher DVD and distill it into one minute. <laughs> thank, thank goodness for people like that, right? I like, mean, come geez. on, bro. Like, keep it simple. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm, I have the attention span of a fucking fruit fly. Come on. The ability to distill that information and deliver it in a way that gets people engaged. One of the big things, and this is something I kind of realized as I matured. I'm not going to name any names because I'm almost, it's almost kind of like a backhanded compliment. So I'm not going to name names, but there are some people that I'm friends with who are absolutely trash at jujitsu. And the majority of their students are trash at jujitsu. These are black belts. The majority of their students are trash at jujitsu. Like these people would fucking lose some of my blue belts. Like easily, handily. But they have a certain way about them that they make people love doing jujitsu. And so sometimes their students are like greatly ex- exceed them. So in that regard, I-, I think that that's important. The ability to inspire people to want to do jujitsu. You're not a tiny little light featherweight. How do you deal with those body types, instructing to those types, whether they're super small or super old or you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah. And it's, it's kind of funny, like strong style. We have 3000 members. Error at the average age of my students there is probably like 45. I got multiple people in the 50s and all different body types, like ranging from one of my guys. I think he's 51. He's a medical doctor. He probably weighs around 240 pounds, just fucking shit brick house. And then I got one of my guys is 135 pounds, five foot. I teach sound fundamentals and I try to cover all the bases. What I try to do is I try to cover all the bases. So I build a curriculum and I write that curriculum out at the beginning of the month for my students. And that curriculum's always developing. I'm always like editing it, always kind of. You're always iterating it and stuff. Yeah, absolutely, man. It's nothing set in stone. And like if people have other ideas for me or sometimes like the class is super small, what I'll do is I will just do a Q&A for my students. Of course. Yeah. It's like a private at that point. Sure. Yeah. But that way, because I'm doing a curriculum, so like the prior month we did, we did open guard, we did open guard. And so I taught different sweeps and submission from open guard. So like a sweep to mount to a arm bar, a sweep to mount to a triangle, attempted sweep to a triangle, like whatever. Just, just kind of going through the different combinations and permutations from different open guards. So De La Hiva, uh, Spider Guard, I didn't really do much X or Butterfly. I'm going to save those for other months. But regardless, then the next month I did Leg Locktober. So what I did was just attacking Leg Locks from top of open guard because we just done open guard. So now it's attacking Leg Locks from top of open guard. Then this month I'm doing passing the open guard. And then each week is a different kind of style or different aspect of it. So for my fundamentals classes, it's positional work, posture, grip sets, things like that. For my advanced classes, there's the actual passing and and that shit. There's different games that we play, like the ecological method. In this way, I try to cover all the bases. So that way the little fuckers are learning, you know, knee cut passes that I really don't use that much. I'll teach them a knee cut. I'll teach them, you know, the, the log splitter open to the closed guard, which doesn't really work for bigger guys like me. Like, I don't really use that, but I'll teach it to them. And so as a result, I'm trying to cover all the bases. I think that any instructor that's only showing their game for their body type, I have had instructors, again, I'm not going to name names because I'm not trying to throw shade on my friends, but I've had instructors that I've worked with or I've had people that I've learned from or whatever who taught stuff that was exclusively appropriate for their body or their attributes. 
And those people, I think, stunted the growth of some of their students. Like, I have one student that came to me from one of my friends, and he was just annoyed that he wasn't learning a game that was applicable to him. And I'm like, I'm just going to show you everything, and you take what works for you and leave the rest. Don't you also think there's a point where a student needs to take ownership of their training also? Of course. But I think that getting to a point where you have the tools to be able to do that is difficult. You know, I got to that point when I was mid-purple belt. So that means if somebody's starting starting under me as a white belt, it's going to take them a bit of time. And so I want to give them a solid foundation. I want to teach them the solid fundamentals. And I want to teach them the solid fundamentals for their body, which is not the same for every person. I always use the two examples in particular. You know, there was a clip floating around where I, me on one of the podcasts where I was talking about, like, I got this one student. She's 54 years old or 55 years old now. Uh, and she's my most active competitor. She's, I think, 145, 150 I don't know. I don't know her actual weight, but like whatever division she's in, she's in a much lighter division than I am. Completely different human being than me. Then there's uh, Stipe. He's one of my students. Stipe is a completely different human. So I got to be able to create training modalities that work for both of them. Yeah, we should mention that Stipe Miocic trains at, at Strong Style. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's one of our fighters. And there's, I mean, there's others. There's, um, we have other MMA fighters, a couple of UFC fighters that are currently training there, a couple of UFC hopefuls that are training there. And then. Yeah. Jessica, I there, right? I saw her this morning. Yeah. She, she, she still comes in sometimes to help out with some of the uh, fighter training. She's retired from fighting, but she's doing great. What I find is that black belts, you're so far removed from day one white belt. So like empathizing and putting yourself in those shoes again of walking through those doors. I mean, I just try to treat everybody like a person doing something new. Last month, I started shooting because I, I decided that I really wanted to arm myself and really wanted to be proficient and safe with my firearms. And one of the coaches at Strong Style is a competitive shooter and is very generous with his time with me. His name is Vadim. Vadim has been helping me learn how to handle my, my pistols. Gonna Now going to be starting to learn how to handle rifles and other such shenaniganry. I'm a white belt at that and i feel like a white belt at that you know so we were at the range today and we were doing uh different drills and at one point i fired off two shots that didn't even hit my target it didn't even graze the paper i know how it feels to be a white belt and i try to do things occasionally at the white belt level and see how it feels not for the sake of feeling like a white belt but whenever i do something new i always think of it okay i'm a white belt at this it's new to me what makes a great student to you great student or great practitioner every student that shows up with the will to learn and with a good attitude is a great student to me all you have to have is good good intention if you have the intention you're a great student now a great practitioner is a bit harder you know i've, I've had some great students that are never going to be great practitioners ever but like you show up as much as you can ideally twice a day every day and you're enthusiastic and you love it and you do everything i tell you to do as far as your training goes you're going to be a great student you ask good questions you're not just a pushover when i say you do everything i tell you to do it's not like a uh, cult-like thing it's more like i need you to do these drills and you fucking do the drills without bitching about it like that that's what i mean by that like just so we're clear about that because i feel like that can come off the wrong way that to me would be a great student so what was it like writing for uh, BJJ Times? Just in time, yeah. I mean, I still do occasionally when, when the site's working. How did that even come about? And started with me trolling somebody. Back in like, no, maybe it was 2014 still. I was trolling somebody on Facebook. And one of the editors 
from TexasMMA.com, which is a now-defunct blog that was owned by Mike Columbus. In my opinion, the best photographer in the sport. You've seen his logo. He was working for uh, Fight to Win for the longest time, like when they really were in their heyday. He was replaced by Q Lee. I don't know if Q's still with Fight to Win, but regardless. So Mike Columbus owned this website, and this guy, Felix, who was editing the site for Mike, reached out to me and was like, hey, do you want to do some uh, writing? And I'm like, are you going to pay me? And he's like, no, but, you know, it's good exposure, good opportunity. You're still a white belt try it out see if you like it whatever so i started writing for him and then kind of built a resume of maybe like 50 articles or whatever did some cool interviews i think i, I interviewed uh keegan machado i interviewed some cool guys at a certain point i'm like all right you know who it was that encouraged me seymour yang meerkatsu so seymour yang i sent him some of my work i'm like what do you think of this we one of the first bloggers in jiu-jitsu like you should probably be writing for some bigger sites you have some good work i'm like Thanks, man. So I reached out to Jiu-Jitsu Magazine, Jiu-Jitsu Style Magazine, a handful of other of these sites and publications. And uh, Kit Canaria, the owner of Jiu-Jitsu Times, was like, yeah, you can write for me. I think he was doing most of it himself at that point, and the, the quality was not great. So he brought me aboard, and just he's a good dude. He's a good dude to work, easy to work with. Kind of let me do my own thing. I kind of use it as like a almost like a training diary sometimes. Like I'd scribble down my thoughts after training. And did okay. You bring up uh, Mirkatsu. When a lot of people think of you, they think of Mirkatsu. Now, how did that relationship sprout as well? Uh, have you heard of Pony Club Grappling Gear? Yes, I have. When I was a white belt, blue belt, purple belt, there were a handful of brands that were like my, you know, my favorite brands. I really liked Scramble. I really liked Mirkatsu. I really liked the Tommy Fightwear. I really like Pony Club Grappling Gear. And so when I was starting to kind of make waves with my work with Jiu-Jitsu Times, because some of my articles were starting to go viral and I was trying to compete a bit more, I was like, you know what? I'll bet I could get some some companies to sponsor me just for, you know, shout outs on social media. I was kind of see, what, see what's what. So I reached out to a bunch of companies, including my four favorites. The one that accepted me was Pony Club Grappling Gear. Pony Club Grappling Gear was designed by Seymour Yang, a lot of their stuff. Not him. He's not his brand, but he designed a lot. Like they did that, uh, the first unicorn rash guard that ever came out in spats. He was the one that did the design. They fell off the face of the earth in 2016. 2017, I was still repping their gear because I, th- I thought they were going to come back. But at a certain point, I realized these these people are not coming back. So I reached out to Seymour and I'm like, hey man, you know, I know I reached out to you in the past. You make some of my favorite shit. So if, if you want an easy sponsorship relationship, he's like, yeah, man, let's do it. He's awesome. Besides the legs, can you tell me, like, in your jujitsu journey, just give us maybe a few or one really big aha moment when you're like, oh, this, I'm taking this, I'm going to implement this into my game. This changes oh, part of my game. Oh, everything. Um, I, simple answer. Armbar from closed guard. Yeah. Wow, really? Yeah, there, there are, there's footage, a lot of footage, actually, of me as a white belt, blue belt, and purple belt armbarring everybody from closed guard. What happened was... 2013, I attended a seminar taught by a gentleman by the name of Tom Feister. He is a black belt out of Gracie Jiu-Jitsu in Columbus, Ohio at the Helsin Gracie Academy. Tom came up here, taught a seminar, taught his grip series, set up a closed guard armbar. I was like, oh, that changes everything. And I just started armbarring everybody. Like, I went from... 
I couldn't really do very well against decent blue belts to I was submitting all those decent blue belts as well as some of the purple belts and some of the brown belts with my closed guard arm bar. And I was arm barring everybody. If you got my closed guard, you regretted it. That was a big aha moment. It was just a set of like grips to get to the closed guard arm bar. And it just, it blew my mind. I was like, this is the way I can do things. What does your typical training look like? Depends on the day. Depends on who's there. Really depends on the day. I try to make sure that I give myself active recovery days where I'm just kind of like flowing with people that I trust to flow and not fucking beating the shit on myself. And there's some days where I'm like, yippee kaye. Like today was the yippee kaye day. And I was I was wrestling with everybody, you know, snap it, snapping people down in front headlock. I was doing very non-Emil stuff. Other days, it's just, I'm just going to take it easy. And I'll pick and choose who I train with. I'm very careful about who I'm training with on which days. I've got a couple of training partners that will hurt me if I'm not on point. And that's okay. Like, it's, I'm not mad at them for that. Like, that's how they roll, and that's acceptable. Then I got other training partners that couldn't fucking tap me if their life depended on it. And that's okay. Again, I need those people. It's great to have that. Yeah. Exactly. Great to have all that. I would say, like, I do really hard rounds probably four days a week. Like, really fucking pedal to the metal. Let's fucking go four days a week. The other three, kind of moving around, put myself in bad positions, you know, let a motherfucker tap me. Yeah, totally. That's interesting. So you will let people tap you. When I say let, I'm never letting anybody tap me. When I say let, I mean like I'm letting positions get to a certain point and then I'll start working out of them. Guys, I'm not trying to take your taps away from you. Seriously. You tap me. No, if you tap me, you earned it. The current meta of jujitsu right now, I know for a while there was just get up, you know, wrestling. I've heard you say, I don't know, maybe a year or two ago that wrestling was the thing, you know, it, what is now the thing? It's still wrestling. Wrestle jitsu is, I think, here to stay for a bit before the guard players strike back with some nonsense. I think the next meta, because currently it's still wrestling, but I think the next meta is going to be a lot of matrix guard, a lot of like crab ride shit and a lot of like, I think Baron Bell is going to make a comeback. That's my theory. We'll see. So in terms of like organizations, what do you think, who do you think is doing it right now? I like grappling industries personally. I think they got a fucking cool little model going for them. I think that they, uh, they have a really cool rule set. I like reaping in the gi. I think reaping in the gi is great. And I wish more, more organizations would allow for it. I think that their rule set and the way their tournaments are run is really good. I wish that there would be a bit more professionalism added to it. Maybe a referee's course that you have to take to referee for them. I think American Grappling Federation is doing a really good job from what I've seen. I, w I went to one of their tournaments. I had a really good time. And I think that the rule set's innovative and they're very open to receptive to feedback. There's a lot of organizations I don't like that I think are doing a great job too, honestly. Like IBJJF, as much as I hate them, like I despise them. I think that at the end of the day, uh, they, they have all the top talent competing for them. So they must be doing something right. Not an IBJJF fan, but at the end of the day, winning an IBJJF world title is worth a lot in the sport. If you want to call yourself a world champion, you have to be an IBJJF world champion, period. You can't be a Naga world champion. You can't be a Grappling Industries world champion. You can't be any of that shit. I think EBI rules is always going to be a really good rule set as an alternative to the points rule sets. I think referees' decision rule sets are kind of shitty. I think ADCC has done a very good job building their brand. Like, as much disdain as I have for Flow Grappling as a company, I think that they've done a really good thing with who's number one. Anyone that's putting on tournaments, I think, is doing the right, is doing a good thing. It's a tough question to answer. The only rule sets that I really enjoy competing under is like a no time limit submission only. And that's unwatchable and, uh, and not feasible for anything in the sport. Is your uh, favorite move still the crying? Always will be, man. I, I don't use it, but... Yeah, I don't see any footage of you hitting the crying. 
I was going to try in a match not too long ago, and then I got out there. I was like, this motherfucker's too strong. I'm just going to leg lock him. Honestly, I just like embarrassing shit. Like, it was funny. Um, I've been Goga plotting one of my students a lot just because I was rolling with him recently. He's like, not this shit again. I'm like, no, no, it's okay. It's okay. Just smell my foot. <laughs> I like moves that look stupid, like the twister, the triangle, like stuff like that I just enjoy. Can you uh, tell me a time you wanted to quit and why? Yeah, so when I was a white belt, I got banned from several local academies in this area, and I was like, fuck this fucking sport and fuck the people that do it. I started training in 1999. Then I moved, I mean, bottom line, I started training in 2011 in Cleveland, Ohio. Like, I started training in 99, off and on, off and on, off and on. 2011, I moved back to Cleveland. I'm like, I'm going to train. I'm going to try competing. Like, this is going to be a thing I do. It's going to be where I'm going to meet some friends. And it's going to be cool. And, you know, all the fucking cliche shit that white belts think about jujitsu. That we want to find out it's not true. Oh, these people are have such good, you know, they have such healthy egos. Now. So I got kicked out of my first academy when I first moved back to town. A place called Ricardo Perez Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu when I first moved back to town. They rebranded themselves as Rio Pro and they kicked me out. And I was like, this is fucking weird. Like, they kicked me out by email. Like, they sent me an email to kick me out. Like, you, know, you seem to have different goals than we do. Blah, 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 blah. Who are you people? So I'm like, all right, fine. So I went to this other place, this other gym called uh, Team Charge. That's the name of the gym. It's the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Center of Ohio. So I went to this academy, and I trained there for another, for a year. So again, I trained one year at this Rio Pro place, and I trained for a year at this Team Charge place. Towards the end of that year, I tore my meniscus in my right knee. That's what it is. I'm okay now. So I, I had part of it removed, and I switched because I moved during the time that I was recovering from the knee surgery. I moved two minutes away from a place called Gracie Humaita, Cleveland, run by a gentleman by the name of Darren Branch. At that time, Darren was cheaper, had like three classes every day. I was like, this is great. I'm going to go here. It's going to be wonderful. So I go to this Gracie Humaita place, and I train there. And about a month in, Darren pulled me aside. He's like, hey, my guys don't like how you roll. You're going to need to change that. I'm like, I'm a white belt, bro. Can you give me more specifics? Can you explain to me what it is about how I roll that upsets you or your students. He's like, it's not really what you're doing. It's like more how you roll. I'm like, bro, that's not an answer. You're going to need to answer that question if you want me to make a change for you. And he's like, just work on how you roll. I'm like, all right, dude, thanks. Great. Great. Good answer. Good fucking, are you fucking kidding me? Like, good answer. Whatever. So I just go back to training at normal. I'm like, I don't know what to do for this guy. Like, yeah, I really did go out of my way to be as nice as I could to this guy as my coach. Like, I, whatever. Two months, three months later, same conversation. I'm like, again, you're not using people words. Use people words. Finally, after about six months there, he's like, you know what? I'm, I'm going to have to cancel your membership here. Bye. I'm like, what the fuck, man? So I turn around and I reach back out to Chris Chard, the owner of the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Center in Ohio. He's like, yeah, no, you're not welcome back here. I'm like, I called you before I switched. To you said it. we were cool. Like, what the fuck? He's like, yeah, no, my guys don't like how you roll. Tell me what that means. Tell me in, in your words. What do I roll too hard? Am I fucking beating up all your guys? Like, what am I doing wrong? So at that point, I'm like, I don't know where to go. There's this strong style place. I really don't like it. Like, I've dropped in here a couple of times. Not really a fan, to be honest with you. It's like, it's an MMA gym. It's loud. There's a million fucking people here. 
So I, I go in, I, I sit down with Pablo, and I'm like, this is what I've had happen. I don't know what I'm doing wrong. If you can tell me what I'm doing wrong, I will do whatever. I will listen to you. You just tell me what to do differently, and I will listen. I'm not looking for trouble. I just want to train and have a good time. This place is too fucking far away from me, quite frankly. You know, I just want to train. And I was really, at that point, contemplating quitting. I was like, if this place doesn't work out, I don't know what the fuck I'm going to do. And so I signed a three-year contract to get the price suit. Like, it was, like, dirt cheap. I think it was, like, at the time, it was, like, $60 a month or something. You know, after about a week, Pablo pulls me aside. He's like, yeah, I, I, know, I know what the problem is. And he's like, the problem is that you're a goofball and you're able to tap out upper belts. And they don't like that. So you can stop being a goofball, which I don't necessarily recommend that you do. You can stop tapping out upper belts, which I don't necessarily recommend that you do either. Or you can just kind of, like... Be a little bit more chill with your submissions until we get you in a higher belt and then do whatever the fuck you want. Essentially, like that kind of paraphrasing it, but like you don't have to finish every submission. Just kind of let it go. Whatever, dude. You didn't tap. Cool. Whatever. Nobody ever told me that I had a responsibility to let go of submissions on like purple belts. I didn't think that was a thing I had to do. It never dawned on me to do that. So I just started picking and choosing how I applied submissions, and I got increasingly better at that. And that was that. No problems. What would have you told yourself if you see young Emil walking in your academy and he comes to you and he's like, hey, I'm having all these problems? I'll be honest with you, man. Like, I feel like Pablo couldn't have given me better advice because it made it so that I was able to train. Again, I, I still had some issues occasionally, like where somebody would fucking like try to explode out of a submission and hurt themselves or like where I didn't think I had it yet and I did and they didn't tap and then they got hurt. So like I still had run ins and issues, but generally speaking it really petered out so like i think that was that was the best advice which is basically and i tell my students this now it's like listen if you catch somebody and they should be tapping use that opportunity to transition to another position you can have a conversation with them you can say hey you should be tapping you're allowed to do that like you're allowed to speak to people while you're fucking rolling with them i feel like people don't use their their words like i feel like if somebody has an issue with how i'm rolling say something you know it's like uh one of my guys he popped a rib or something he's like hey can you uh not drop your fucking knee on my chest today i'm like sure no problem no problem i just i won't drop my knee on your chest today it's, it's pretty common for people to ask each other hey you got anything that's bugging you today yeah but when it's ego it's a different thing when it's my ego that's bugging me and uh, i really don't want you to armbar me and you've got me in a fucking armbar and my choices are let you break my shit or tap and i choose not to tap get hurt that's on me so instead, now, if I have somebody in a position, like, especially when it comes to legs, I will make direct eye contact and be like, I think I've got this. I'm going to let it go now because I, I'm good. I'm good. You don't like that? That's really, I, I don't want to hurt you. I want to train with you tomorrow. Speaking of unconventional, uh, Burt Reynolds guard, how did that come about? As far as Burt Reynolds guard goes, I had a training partner who was considerably smaller, weaker. Worse at jujitsu than me. And just to fuck with him, sometimes I just kind of lay on my side and just kind of, you know, wait. And I found that there were some really neat entries to shit off of him trying to approach that position. And then I started doing it in competition. And it works. Like, it works. Like, it works, works. Like, you can really fuck somebody's whole day up with it. And so, yeah, that, that's how it came about. You know, like, I've, I've had different uh, different instructional outlets. First, I was just doing whatever. Then, um, Rockfin. Have you heard of Rockfin? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I got on Rockfin because of uh, Andy Robat. He wrestled in the 2008 Olympics. He came to Strong Style. We were training, and we just, we hit it off. Like, super good guy. And when Rockfin was 
first starting, he hits me up and is like, you need to get on this yesterday and you need to put whatever, you know, five minute instructional clips that you've been doing on your Facebook page on there. Now you will make bank. I'm like, really? I'll try. And I made bank. Like I made a significant amount. Like I was able to pay off my car. It was honestly at the time life-changing money for me. And uh, the the returns kind of diminished. And then Facebook started paying me for reels. And so I kind of steered away from Rockfin, started doing Facebook reels. I should probably do YouTube too, but I'm lazy. Yeah, Facebook and Instagram reels. I made good money there. Still pulling in a, a kind of a little bit of income every month from there. There was a period of time when it was like thousands of dollars every month. Wow, that's fantastic, man. Early days. Way to strike when the iron's hot. I got lucky, honestly. Like, I'm very lucky that I made a good impression on Andy and that he thought to hit me up and hook me up. You've had this really interesting life, and I've noticed this pattern of just running into these different people and do, saying yes to a bunch of different stuff and trying a bunch of different stuff and meeting a lot of interesting people. Yeah, I've, I've been very lucky. Especially not being in, like, California, like, at the time, you know what Never, I mean? Or yeah, yeah. Florida or Texas now. You're in Ohio. Yeah, I'm in Cleveland. Know, Cleveland area. Yeah, I've just been, I've been very fortunate. I don't know. I, I'm just very fortunate. Like I meet people and I tend to just hit it off with the right people. It just winds up working itself out. Like Andy was a great training partner when he was around. He's actually now in Texas. I think in the Dallas, Fort Worth area running a wrestling academy down there. I always have my fingers crossed that he's going to come up here because that guy was great to train with. Talk about a bizarre grappler. He was trying to do jujitsu without a jujitsu background and was at the time, I don't know if he's still of that mindset, but at the time was refusing to take classes. He just wanted to roll. He would sometimes, if he got to a top position, I was not moving him and I was a brown belt at the time and I just I couldn't move him I couldn't do shit to him and he would just eventually find a submission and I would be like oh shit I'm gonna have to tap to this white belt <laughs> dude he's just he's just so good <laughs> <laughs> like, God damn, okay. that's insane that's weird to feel those type of different animals like that man why does metal speak to you so much I enjoy things that are intricate like I enjoy things that are very intricate and that are very multi-layered and that have a lot of um, aspects to them. I enjoy technicality for the technicality's sake. I like seeing things deconstructed. Like I'm, you know, whatever Asperger's brain I got going here is like, I like, I just, I enjoy the patterns. And metal does that really well in a very satisfying, crunchy kind of way. Top three bands in rotation right now for you. Shit. Um, okay, so we got Soen. S-O-E-N. I mean, the last couple of weeks, I've been listening to a ton of um, Catatonia because they just played locally up here. There's a band called Terramaze. That's T-E-R-A-M-A-Z-E. They're one of my favorites. I'm actually wearing one of their shirts right now. And then I've been really into this band called Currents the last couple of years. Interestingly enough, their bass player trains. He's actually come up and trained with me a couple of times. His name is Chris. <laughs> he just got his brown belt. So shout out, Chris. Congrats on the brown belt. If you see this. But they are fucking phenomenal. Like, I want to talk more about your relationship with uh, Dante Leon. How did that come about? Did he stumble into strong style at some point or? So I've been familiar with Dante since I was a white belt. He's been competing locally since he, I mean, he was a child at the time. Very, very good competitor. Phenomenal. Always entertaining to watch. Always puts on a fucking show. I mean, I remember like one of my last tournaments at white belt, I watched him do a super fight. He lost that super fight, but man, what a fucking like barn burner of a match. All of his matches are like that. Seems like, yeah. 
No, Dante is just very entertaining to watch. And so I was always fascinated by him. When I was writing for Jiu-Jitsu Times, I did a couple articles about him, hit him up for interviews. So you're always cordial. When I was still a brown belt, summer of 2020, I was preparing for a match that never happened with Tex Johnson. In the preparation for that match, I needed some elite looks. I needed it. I didn't feel like I could go to that match without getting some looks from guys that were high level. At the time, they weren't doing any weekend training. Dante and his guys weren't doing any weekend training. So I hit up a guy that I know that trains with him that I'm friendly with. His name is Brad Schneider. So Brad had moved from Columbus to Toledo to train at Dante's. You know, was an aspiring pro competitor and instructor. He's competed on like grapple. He's a great competitor. He won Nogi Pans at Adult Brown Belt. He's very, very good. And Brad and I had had a bit of a rivalry at lower belts. And then, interestingly enough, Stipe was preparing for a fight. One of Brad's training partners had competed against Stipe at a fight to win and had actually beaten Stipe at that fight to win by decision. And the guy was actually coming up to help Stipe prepare for the fight. And uh, Brad would come up with him. And they came up here. I trained with him a couple of them. We started actually having conversations. We realized that the other guy wasn't that bad. It's like we just became friends. And I, I, I'm very fond of the guy. And I hit him up and I'm like, hey, any chance I can get you guys to do a weekend training session that I can come down to? Like, And he made it happen for me. We did like a, a weekend training session and then it became kind of a regular thing. There was a period of time where, like, I was going out there very regularly, and at a certain point, I'm like, listen, there is a possibility that the affiliation with Pablo is is not going to be tenable. That's a possibility that's going to happen. You know, Pablo, at the time, was contemplating leaving Cleveland and going elsewhere, going down to Florida. And I knew that if he left, I had no connection to Brasa other than Pablo, you know, no real deep connection. And if he gave it his blessing... I was going to change affiliations. It required his blessing. So I talked to Pablo and then I talked to Dante and both them were on board with it. Like I said, Pablo's is one of those guys. I have nothing but good things to say about him. Eventually, Pablo left Strong Style. Very different scenario, very different terms. Like things were very different than I had expected them to be. But when I went and talked to Marcus and I said, hey, we're going to need an affiliation. Let's stay under Pablo. And he's like, no, we're not staying under Pablo. I want to have, you know, a clean slate. I want to go somewhere else. I'm like, okay, what do you think? He goes, what do you think of this Dante Leon kid? He's like, I really like him. What do you think of him, Emil? I'm like, if that's the way you want to go, I'm down. Now, as far as what it feels like to train with Dante, he is very, very good. He has good days and bad days in training like everybody else. He trains like it's what he does for a living. He's very hard-nosed in training. Like, he fucking goes. Like, he goes hard. And some sessions he's going a little bit less hard. Some sessions he goes more hard or harder. It's what a healthy training environment looks like. And getting to train with him is eye-opening. Like, you really experience what an elite guy feels like in the training room. And if you've never rolled with an elite grappler, try it. Have your tapping hand ready to go quick. Because they will break your shit. You know, especially if you're, like, going hard on them. They will hurt you. It's not a knock at all. Like, I'm just saying, like, these people are very, very good, and they don't hold back. They don't necessarily go too hard, but they don't go easy either. It's always an eye-opener. For me, I go there when I need to be humbled. I don't get humbled very often training here. I will lose in training. I will lose in competition. I'll get, you know, tapped out. But it's it's very different when it's somebody like Dante, who will, at times, make me feel like a day one white belt. So the Academy, you ever thought of opening your own? I've thought about it. I'll be honest, man. Like I run a business. Like I, I own a factory and I run it. So I've got that. 
I got a one-year-old running an academy that I have skin in the game is terrifying to me. The idea is terrifying to me. Like it sounds fucking scary. Right set of conditions, I'd consider it, but I'll be honest, like, Strong Style's been wonderful. Effective Jiu-Jitsu is a really cool little, like, side thing that I do, and, like, one thing that's kind of cool there, again, like, I, I cannot speak highly enough of Strong Style, you know, I'm hoping that the relationship continues on the current trajectory, because it's just been great. When they first hired me, I'm like, listen, I got this other program, I'm not giving it up. If that's a problem, I'm not the man for the job. And they're like, that's not fun. And then my students started wanting to join Strong Style. And then some of the people from Strong Style started wanting to join Ararat. So I sat down and had a conversation with the you know, management. I'm like, listen, this is what I'm doing. This is what you're doing. Why don't we just offer both sets of students a discount? And that's what we're doing now. So, like, if you train at one place, you pay one price. You play at the other place, you pay another price. If you train at both, both places reduce the price down. And that way, neither place is losing students to the other place unless, like, there's a distance issue or some shit. And that's it. I don't know that I necessarily want to fuck with that eco that ecosystem. If things don't work out, I've got fallbacks in either direction. But like as it is right now, I'm good, man. It's a great gig. I enjoy it. I have fun. I can sleep easy at night, not thinking about how am I going to pay for the rent. We're good. So just some final advice on we got like people out there that train at academies that maybe like leg lock is not their thing. Maybe they're a traditional gi, you know, and they're transitioning no gi and they're playing around with heel hooks and the leg game to some extent. Any broad or specific sort of quick tips and advice? I'll be honest, man. The only way I've been able to improve my leg game is by training with like guys that are really good at legs. That's the honest to God truth. I first saw leg locks in action in around 2013. It was Joe Bays going against a guy by the name of Josh Souter. I saw him using leg locks to just make the other guy look like he didn't know what he was doing. I was like, that's an option. That's an op. That's an option. That's a thing I can do. So I started, you know, going after feet occasionally in training. And I was like, all right, I'm getting pretty good at this leg lock thing. And then I'd fucking compete against like an athlete that didn't want to tap. And they let me pop their ankle, but that was it. And then they'd still beat me and they'd limp away, but they'd be fine the next day or the next week or whatever. That's the thing. Like you can pop somebody's shit with a heel hook. And if you don't have good brake mechanics, they'll be fine. Like you learn how to determine the difference rather quickly training with guys that actually know legs. And there's a certain sensation when they really fucking latch on. It was like, oh, fuck tap. So anybody says that it's, you know, spontaneously going to hurt you is full of shit. It wasn't until I started training with Sean and then started kind of letting Marcus teach me some of his tricks that I actually started getting good at legs. And even then I had confidence, but I wasn't great at them yet. And then I'm still not, I mean, I don't consider myself to be great at legs. I consider myself to have very tight finishing mechanics on them. That's a great point. I was going to ask you the importance of entries versus like control versus finishing mechanics. Control is very important. Finishing mechanics are very important. I don't have the best entries. I mean, pretty much my entries are you did something stupid. So here's a leg lock to punish you. I got to like learn from Josh LaDuke a little bit. And uh, he taught me quite a bit. And I did some of his Zapatero shit and had to actually use it in competition at work. Got to compete against Joe Bays a couple of times. Got to actually see what 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 was what. Learning from Quentin Rosenzweig. Learning from Dante. Like, Dante's very knowledgeable about legs. He has really educated himself. Training with people that understand legs will help you understand legs. If you're training with people that panic tap to an ankle lock and call it a heel hook, eesh, it's tough. 
it's really tough to, to learn legs kind of on your own. There are people who have done it. Allegedly, Craig Jones did it by watching Danaher's students compete. That's what I've heard said. Now I can watch a video and learn from it. But back then, if I saw a video explaining leg locks, I didn't understand what I was seeing. And like, I remember uh, one time, and there's... It's actually it was caught on video. It was posted on Jiu-Jitsu Times' page. I rolled with uh, Tom DeBlash for like 20 minutes. And uh, it was at a seminar. It was cool. And uh, when we were rolling, he kept like catching me in these outside here. I was like, Whoa. I'm like, I literally would just sit up and like watch him do it and tap. And I asked him, I go, how do I learn this shit? He goes, you got to train people that know it. You got to train people that know it. I'm like, so I can't just, you know, buy an instructional and just learn it. Like, he goes, no. I mean, I don't know if that's still the case now with all the stuff that's out there, but I've rolled with some, like, self-taught, watched all the Danaher DVDs guys, and I usually run through them very easily. Because there's something about feeling that point on somebody that's not scared of leg locks where you could break them, like with Sean. Sean was the one that really, he'd let me take him right to the breaking point. Be like, you feel that tension there? If you go any further, it's going to break. And then he'd do the same thing to me. Like, you feel that tension there? It's like, ah, ah, tap, tap. He's like, you're good. Stay there. Feel it. Feel Tap, tap. Feel it. Okay, I feel it. All right. <laughs> you have to trust the person. You're putting your, your health in their hands. When I was getting ready for Joe Bay's, Joe's most notorious regionally just used to snap people's legs in half in competition. Literally. This happened on multiple occasions. He's not happy about it at all. They, this happened. Like, he used to cry. According to him, he used to cry about it afterwards. But, like, when I was getting ready for him, I'm like, okay, how do I prepare for somebody whose finishing mechanics are so strong that he can break my leg in half? So I went to Marcus, who I thought was the best ankle locker that I knew at the time. So I had Marcus put me in his Achilles lock. And I'd be panic scream tapping before he even got his grip on. Over time, I developed a tolerance to it, to where now he can put it on and it'll, you know, start to bend my shin in half before I really have to tap. But then when Joe got on my ankle, I was like, I felt this before. This is not that bad. And then I was able to do my thing from there. So I, my best advice is find the nearest leg locker that's willing to teach you. Otherwise, good luck. What is your comp training looking like? I got, I trained at Strong Style MMA. I have UFC caliber fighters that have wrestled that are willing to scrap with me. I got national champs and whatnot that are willing to train with me. So I'm going to train with them and I'm going to work a strategy for the match and we'll see what happens. I mean, this guy is very good. He's done a bunch of ADCC opens and has performed well against like really good guys. I mean, he hasn't beaten any really good guys, but he's performed well against them. I don't think he's really been submitted very often at these ADCC opens. Um, it's one of those things like I believe that that I can beat any wrestler you put in front of me that doesn't know that much about submissions, but this guy's very durable. He's hard to leg lock. I've seen that. I'll try, but... <laughs> Is there anything that we didn't cover that you wanted to cover? Stop supporting gyms like Fight Sports. I feel like that's a thing people don't hear enough. Like, if your gym has allowed known rapists to train there, don't train at that gym. I can't believe that we see some of the people that we still do being promoted. It just, it just shocks yeah, me. I never understand. It's like, why Why are we just not ignoring these people? Well, Emil, where can we get more information about you and everything that you're up to? Uh, my Instagram and Facebook are at Emil Fisher BJJ. That's E-M-I-L-F-I-S-C-H-E-R-B-J-J. You can find me on YouTube. There's videos of me getting my ass kicked and kicking some ass on the YouTubes. 
All right, everyone. Thanks so much for uh, another week. I am your host, Adolfo Fronda. Please join us again. You know all the places to look for us and support all the things and go premium $1 a month. Not even a dollar a month. Come on. Buy me some coffee or something already. Come on, people. Emil, it was, it was a pleasure, man. A lot of fun. Thanks for coming on. Of course. Awesome, man. All right, everyone. See you guys.